Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Wow, what a week. Just what a week. Let me start off with, in, in sort of a backhanded way, something that is, I, I think is good news. Now... The coronavirus pandemic continues to rage, and um, we, we need to continue to be careful. There's all sorts of medical experts that are out there. They're saying even though there are, people are getting vaccinated, um, the rollout, of course, is slower than people had hoped for, and it takes a little while even after you've been vaccinated. So, you know, the, the ca- there is there are cautionary notes. You know, don't be irresponsible. If you've managed to avoid getting COVID-19, um, you, you don't want to get it at this stage. So, you know, try to continue to do it. Now, there is some, in a weird way, some good news for people who've had COVID-19 and have recovered, the conventional wisdom has been that you have immunity for at least three months. There's a new study out saying that, um, well, here's the headline in the Washington Post, post-infection coronavirus immunity, usually robust after eight months. The human body typically retains a robust immune response to the coronavirus for at least eight months after an infection and potentially much longer, researchers said in a study published in the journal Science. About 90% of the patients showed um, lingering stable immunity, the study found. So again, nobody wants to get this, but one of the big questions has been, how long is that immunity going to last? And again, conventional wisdom has been it lasts at least three months and potentially more. Now, at least there's some scientists who are saying that, you know, at the eight month point, they're finding for, you know, most people, they're finding a lingering stable immunity. And again, that, that's, that is, that is good news. And, and maybe, it also will kind of change the, the thinking as to, you know, who needs to get vaccinated. In other words, um, it, as long as we have a shortage, if people have had it and they have recovered from it, can they go towards the back of the line as far as getting the vaccine and allow the vaccine to be given to people who haven't had it, don't have that immunity and certainly don't want to contract it? Now, again, I understand this is one study. We're still learning things, but. The, the longer you you have this immunity, and candidly, I mean, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, I don't play one on the radio, but I always felt that, that, that the idea of, of immunity for only three months didn't really make much sense to me, and now you're starting to see these studies that come out, and they're suggesting it. So that that's some good news. If you have had it, and if you have recovered, well, apparently you're going to have some immunity, and if the study is right, that immunity is going to last longer than people uh, perhaps thought. All right. This this perhaps says something about me. August 8th, 1974. A day, Gru, when were you born? What year were you born? Uh, 15 years later, 1989. You were born in 1989. So, all right. So, <laughs> August 8th of 1974. I remember distinctly where I was on August 8th of 1974. I was, this was between my junior and senior years in high school. I, I was, I was in competitive debate and I was at a debate workshop at uh, Northern Michigan University, Marquette, Michigan. 
And I remember sitting in this classroom that evening, because you know what happened on August 8th of 1974, and I threw this date out before, and probably about two dozen people have already responded on the text line have got it. August 8th, 1974, was the evening. It was a Thursday. That night, Richard Nixon addressed the country and announced that he would be resigning the following day, August 9th. So the actual formal resignation took place on Friday, August 9th. And you might have seen the, the, the pictures of Richard Nixon and his wife, Pat, getting on the helicopter. But but he made the announcement in a speech. I, I can remember, matter of fact, I even remember some of the people that I was sitting with, you know, watching Nixon announce that he had resigned because of the Watergate scandal. What had happened to precipitate this is... Despite, you know, fighting and fighting and fighting things, ultimately the Supreme Court had ordered these various White House tapes disclosed, and the tapes showed that contrary to what President Nixon had been saying, he had actually known about the Watergate break-in substantially before he had said that, uh, that he did. And at that point in time, you know, hearing Nixon on tape, that that caused the support that he had in the Senate to to crumble. And, of course, this was a deal where there were articles of impeachment and the trial would ultimately be in the Senate. And a handful of Republican senators, led by then-Senator Barry Goldwater from Arizona, they they marched from Capitol Hill up to the White House or over to the White House and told the president that if there is no longer support for you, and if you do not resign, you will be removed from office through the impeachment process. You will be convicted in a trial in the Senate. And then Richard Nixon addressed the country and, and announced that he, in fact, was was resigning. As an aside, there were people back then who predicted this is the end of the Republican Party. It's over. And it's true that in 1976, it was a really, really bad year for Republicans. But for everybody that predicted that the Republican Party was going to be over, well, what happened in six years later in 1980? Well, Ronald Reagan was elected the president. So I, I bring this out just because for, for people who might be looking and trying to find parallels with current events and say, oh, my gosh, this is the destruction of the Republican Party. It's all over. I, I remember Watergate. I mean, and I was a I was a political junkie even back then. I remember that. I remember these predictions. This is it for the Republican Party. Like I say, six years later, you have Ronald Reagan and the rebirth of the conservative movement. So there are political pendulums that swing, and, and that's important to remember. But the bigger point is Nixon made the decision. He no longer, and it was forced on him, but, I mean, he was told that he no longer had support and he decided he would resign. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that Nixon decided he was going to resign because he thought it was the in the interest of the country. Nixon, in my opinion, resigned because he was told, look, this is going to be inevitable. If you don't resign, you're going to be removed by, by the impeachment. You're going to be convicted of impeachment, and you're going to be forced out. And do you want to be the... the do you, do you want to be remembered by history as, as somebody who was removed from office through impeachment? All right, what what does that have to do with today? Well, I have in my hands, I would say, a stack that contains at least 12 to 15 articles from different media outlets all across the, the country, including the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal editorial board, which is a conservative a conservative editorial board, something that you do not find very often. And the general theme of these is, given the events of the past week, the last couple days, and the events of the last couple months, there are 
there's there's a lot of people calling for President Trump to depart before his term ends in two weeks. Some people are saying, use the 25th Amendment. Mike Pence and the cabinet should remove him. As I told you yesterday, that that is, that is just not going to happen. It's a matter of law. I don't think that it's the 25th Amendment is not designed for situations like this. The 25th Amendment is designed for situations where the president is incapacitated. You, you've had a heart attack. You've had a stroke. You're unable to perform your, your duties. That is not the situation we have now. The other alternative, and there's a lot of commentators, uh, particularly liberal commentators, saying you should have impeachment. We, we, we should impeach him. Well, He's committed impeachable offenses. The call um, to the Georgia Secretary of State last weekend was sufficient to do that. The the aiding and abetting, the rioting, if you believe that's what happened, that is sufficient to, to remove him. The problem is Congress is not in session right now, and you, you'd have to call Congress back to session. You'd have to draft articles of impeachment. You'd have to have the arguments. You'd have to then have a trial in the Senate. And and President Trump's term lasts less than two weeks. The inauguration is two weeks from, from yesterday. As a practical matter, with Congress out of session, even if you wanted to hop on the impeachment train, I, I just don't think that there's enough time to do that. Which brings us to the third alternative. In the interest of the country... The Wall Street Journal argues that President Trump should resign. Here, let me read you a portion of the editorial. The lodestar of these columns is the U.S. Constitution. The document is the durable foundation protecting liberty, and this week it showed its virtue again. Despite being displaced for a time by a mob, Congress returned the same day to ratify the Electoral College vote and Joe Biden's elections. Congratulations to the president-elect. That still leaves Wednesday's disgrace and what to do about the 13 days left in Donald Trump's presidential term. Democratic leaders Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi are demanding that Trump be removed from office immediately, either by the cabinet under the 25th Amendment or new articles of impeachment. There's partisan animus at work here, but Mr. Trump's actions on Wednesdays do raise constitutional questions that are not casually dismissed. In concise summary, on Wednesday, the leader of the executive branch incited a crowd to march on the legislative branch. The express goal was to demand that Congress and the vice president reject electors from enough states to deny Mr. Biden an electoral college victory. When some in the crowd turned violent and occupied the Capitol, the president uh, caviled, which means delayed, and declined for far too long to call them off. When he did speak, he hedged his plea with election complaint. This was an assault on the constitutional process of transferring power after the election. It was also an assault on the legislature from an executive sworn to uphold the laws of the United States. This goes beyond merely refusing to concede defeat in our view. Again, this is the conservative Wall Street Journal editorial board. It crosses a constitutional line that Mr. Trump hasn't previously crossed before. We believe that it is impeachable. Then it goes on to talk about how the 25th Amendment really doesn't apply and impeachment so late in the term would not be easy. It would further enrage Mr. Trump's supporters in a way that wouldn't help Mr. Biden govern, govern, much less heal partisan divisions. And then it goes on to say, if Mr. Trump wants to avoid a second impeachment, his best, best path would be to take personal responsibility and resign. It would be the cleanest solution since it would immediately turn presidential duties over to Mr. Pence and it would give Mr. Trump agency, a la Richard Nixon, over his own faith.
fate. It might also stem the flood of White House and cabinet resignations that are understandable as acts of conscience, but could leave the government dangerously unmanned. All right. Wall Street Journal saying Donald Trump should resign. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Two weeks left in the term. There's two issues, of course. Is that a likely situation? But given where the Trump administration, where President Trump stands right now, given the fact that you have people in the cabinet, people in the government that are bailing at unprecedented levels, given that you have some people who are saber rattling about impeachment. Now, again, I don't think that there's enough time for that to happen. But given the fact that the presidency has been definitively crippled, I think for the at least certainly until Joe Biden takes over, would it be in the interest of the country for Donald Trump to resign? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Wall Street Journal says absolutely. What do you say? We discuss in a moment. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Mike, who's calling us from Illinois. Mike, good afternoon. Mike? Mike? Yes, I'm here. Okay, hi. What do you think? Should he resign? I do not think he should resign. I think that would cause more chaos than help the country or anything else. What chaos? Tell me what chaos you think it would cause. So we only have one full week of his presidency left. It's it's you know a week from next Wednesday right. until inauguration day. Um, I just think that it's it would add to the already the atmosphere of chaos that we have right now in our country, which is intense. It would add to it. And what you had said earlier about um, you know inflaming his supporters I, yeah. I think that would do that i mean i know he'd be doing it himself voluntarily but i still think it would not be good for the country there's only if there was a year left i'd say go with your impeachment go through the process and you know maybe put pressure on him to resign but there is less than two weeks left it would only cause more chaos what what if and i and i'm not predicting this and i'm not hoping for this but what if over the course of the next, like, 13 days, all of a sudden we are faced with an, an international crisis. Um, do you think there would be confidence in President Trump to respond to it? And do you think the current situation he finds himself might embolden Iran, Russia, China, whatever, to try to, 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 try to push buttons in the United States because they, they see a president who has clearly been, been weakened, if not permanently crippled? I don't. We are still the United States of America. You know, the military is under the direction of the president. However, it takes time to do anything in our country. That's why, you know, the founding fathers set up parameters for declaring war. It it takes time. Nothing can happen immediately. I don't. We still are united. Mm -hmm. And if a country, a a domestic, I'm sorry, a foreign terrorist is doing a trying to harm our country, we will unite. I believe that 100%. Okay, thanks for the call. I, I appreciate it. And, and I, I, I want to think that you're right. I also think that that hopefully hopefully messages are being sent to, you know, through through international channels saying, look, don't don't push anybody's buttons right right now. You know, don't if you think this is a time to test the United States, don't don't do that. But but the problem I guess is under these particular circumstances, you know, what 
what what what happens? I, I keep I keep remembering the, the Bob Woodward book, and I'm not necessarily a huge fan of Bob Woodward, but it's called The Final Days. It's about the last days of the Nixon administration, and it, it talks about how how Richard Nixon had become increasingly isolated. And you do get the idea that President Trump is sort of in, in that same kind of situation that it's him and it's Rudy Giuliani and it's a handful of, of the close advisors there. And you you do wonder whether is it in the interest of the country now to to maybe say we're, we're going to turn this over to Mike Pence as a caretaker as a caretaker president for the next couple weeks just to get us through that time 855-616-1620 eric in burlington eric you're on wtmj hi good afternoon hi eric um you know as far as saying he should resign do i think he should resign i've been a strong supporter of our president you know for the past four years and i've seen the decisiveness and everything that's gone on in our country and at this point sometimes you gotta swallow your pride it's a big thing, you know, we're all taught that growing up, sometimes swallow your pride and do the right thing. You know, it's not the worst thing. Pence would take office and, like you said, maintain for the next few days. I do not believe the 25th Amendment should be used in this case because then you just start a new standard on uh, yeah. you don't like something. Yeah, and, I, and I, I just, as a matter of law, I just don't think that applies to this situation. Yeah. yeah. And my big question was, and maybe I'm completely off, I just haven't heard it mentioned, in the Constitution, does it say that January 20th has to be the inauguration day? I know, you know, we've had presidents assassinated, and it's pretty quick to get a new guy in office. Yeah. So I, what about just saying, let the sucker up and I, I, let, yeah, let I don't think let's inaugurate the votes are open? Yeah, Eric, th- thanks for the call. I, I don't, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I, it, I, I don't think January 20th is in the Constitution, but it, it is. It is it is in the Constitution as to when the term starts and and when the the previous term ends. So I you, you can't just move it up and say we're going to knock off two weeks out of off of your term. And, and in that case, even if it was, the president would have to agree to that. And that's not the. I, I so I, I'm reasonably I am reasonably certain that you could not do that off the top of my head. No, if there's going to be a transition, it would have to be through a resignation. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if the Democrats are going to try to push impeachment because, again, we're, we're sitting here on on Friday. You'd have to bring the House and then bring the, the the Senate back into session. Right now, the Senate still is controlled by the Republicans. So, I mean, it, it would it be political theater. Yeah, it seems to me that there's just not enough time to do it. But would it be in the interest of the country for the president to resign? We're going to pick it up right there. 855-616-1620. Um, let's take a quick break. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't think the 25th Amendment really applies here. I guess impeachment is always a possibility but given the fact that the president's term ends two weeks from yesterday, I, I don't think that there's enough time to get this done, given where, where we are, regardless of how you are in impeachment. The issue could go away, though, if President Trump were to decide in the interest of the country, given where we are now, um, that it was in his interest, it was in the interest of the country for him to resign. Wall Street Journal editorial board is saying exactly that. 855-616-1620. Lucy on the West Side. Hi, Lucy. Hi. Um, I think he should resign. I know darn well he won't. And furthermore, I think that the Wall Street Journal is a little bit late to the party 
This is Rupert Murdoch trying to position himself to go into the new administration without seeming quite so odious to people in the middle. I read the Wall Street Journal. Um, I've, I've been watching their, their appalling editorials, for, what I think are appalling editorials, for years, and I don't believe for a minute that they're not that this isn't Murdoch just trying to position himself. On the 25th Amendment, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's an absolute non-starter yeah. if the vice president does not go along. And, is and that the right? cabinet. Yeah, ab- absolutely. It has to be the vice president of the cabinet, right. And it's, it's not going to happen. And Plus, I don't think it actually even applies because... I, you know, I, I, but, well, I read it. I read it, and I'm confused. I mean, you'd have to make a mental health case. Right. That's a heck of a lot harder than making a case... You've had a stroke or a heart attack or you're under surgery or something like that. Okay, so should he resign? Would that be in the interest of the country right now for him to step down? Well, it would be. It would be because it would stop the pardons. That's my biggest fear, and that's the reason he won't. He he's not going to resign because he wants to pardon um, people that should not be pardoned in the last two days. Mm -hmm. Giuliani and his family members come to mind, don't you think? It will be interesting, I, I guess, to see what happens. So one of the theories out there, Lucy, is that you cut a deal, you resign with the understanding that Mike Pence would then issue you a pardon. Um, because I think legally, although some people disagree, legally I don't think a president can pardon himself. If you were, pre- if you were Pence, do you make that deal? Um, I don't think Pence is going to. I um, because Pence wants to run. You know, it, it, Jerry Ford might have won that election. If he hadn't pardoned Jimmy Carter, uh, I'm glad Richard Jimmy Nixon. Carter got elected. He's still one of my big heroes, but but it really hurt Ford, and nobody knows or will ever know if Ford and Nixon had a deal before Nixon resigned. Yeah, thanks for calling. I appreciate it. Well, if, if I'm Mike Pence, I, I don't I, I don't get anywhere near that. I mean, and I I think you you saw Mike Pence, who'd been a very very loyal soldier for four years, finally saying enough is enough. And um, there there was a falling out this week because President Trump got very angry that Mike Pence wouldn't hijack Congress on on Wednesday. And apparently the president turned on him. If if I'm Mike Pence and the president comes to me and says, I'm thinking about resigning, but I I want you to make a commitment that you're going to pardon me. If I'm Mike Pence, I I say, uh, no way, Mr. President. Bob in Greenfield. Bob, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hello, Jeff. Um, I at this late stage, I I don't really uh, want to see him resign. I mean, obviously, uh, people are worried about him starting some armed conflict or doing some other damage. Um, I worry about uh, his base, the radicalized part of his base. You know, the um, possible uh, domestic terrorists. I, I think there was like a bomb threat yesterday in the Michigan uh, capital. I think there were a couple other capitals that were having problems. And I think um, it would just be better for him to go away um, quietly. I I would um, like to see them invoke the 25th Amendment, uh, but I guess that's just contrary to what I say. I mean, I, I don't want him to be president anymore, but I don't want any... Uh, any more right. civil law unrest to... Well, um, well that's why, Bob, I, I don't think even... Look, if, if we were talking about six months left in the presidency or a year left in the presidency, um, the, the impeachment... but but. The impeachment discussion, whether it's, you know, what happened this week or the phone call to Georgia, uh, to the Georgia Secretary of State, those are, in my opinion, at least more compelling arguments than what they, they impeached him for, you know, a, a year ago, the Ukrainian thing. But, but at least you had time. Here, and I appreciate what you're saying, there's, 
you know, you, you want to talk about throwing this country into turmoil, especially with the some of the Trump loyalists that are out there. You try to forcibly remove him because even in the best of circumstances, you, you, even if you tried to rush Russian impeachment through, even if you could get the Senate to convene and hold a trial, you, you probably can't get it done until uh, at best case scenario, a day or two before the inauguration, at which point in time the question becomes, if that's the route, why bother? Yeah, it would just cause more uh, discontent. Um, and I, I don't, yeah, I don't think at that point the, um, the Senate would um, right. agree to it. Right. And right. I, I am concerned at his um, apparent mental state, but uh, obviously um, there's other considerations, too. Right. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. And, and unless you think that this is universal, and of course, Bob was talking about, um, well, there, there's still a lot of hardcore Trump supporters out there who would not be happy with this. Um, let me just share a text I got. And, and this isn't necessarily representative. Again, I, I always have to caution people because during the course of a program, I will get hundreds and hundreds of texts. And I appreciate you participating in that way. And, and I, I just physically can't read them, them all. But I, I pick and choose some just to give you, and they're not necessarily representative of the majority of texts I get, but it's, a, it's representative of at least some people's thinking. Jeff, you are a rhino, which is, of course, Republican in name only. It is not time for President Trump to resign. He will go down in history as one of the greatest presidents ever. Our nation is on the verge of destruction, and he is one of the last ones holding it together and fighting the corruption. Joe Biden should resign for what his son has done and what he has allowed, what he allowed during the Obama years. Now, I, I raise that just to, because for people who are saying, okay, well, if you would have an impeachment, it would not be divisive, that, that's just not the case. There, there's, there's some people who even to this day think that, again, this texter was saying, Donald Trump's going to be go down in history as one of the greatest presidents ever. Sorry, I, I, I don't see that. And I, I think the events of the last couple months have really, really, really hurt his, his legacy. I, I think... I think the way he's behaved in the last couple months has been nothing short of of appalling. And I do think, you know, a resignation would be in the interest of the country. Now, do I think it's going to happen? Don't think so. Let's talk to um, uh, Carrie in Pleasant Prairie. Carrie, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. My problem with not impeaching President Trump is that he has stated he wants to um, run again in 2024. Now, whether he does or not, who knows? But I think I would feel a little differently about it if this was the end of his second term. Um, I really am uncomfortable with the fact that we would think to do nothing. And that's that's just my thought. Thank you. Uh, thanks for call, Carrie. Well, it, by... Um, I guess a number of people are saying, and I, I just I, I should know this off the top of my head, and I, I don't, but saying that if he were impeached, that would guarantee that he could not run again. I, I, I off the top of my head, I don't think that's right, but I, but I, I could very well be wrong about that. I mean, I think you know, even if he had been, even if he had been impeached in in twenty nineteen or you know twenty twenty, even if he had been impeached, you know and removed from office, I think my understanding is off the top of my head, I, I think he could have run again. So I'm not sure that impeachment stops him from running again, but I, I'm willing to be corrected on that. But again, I'm, I'm, I'm not thinking necessarily the future. I mean, maybe I will be proven to be wrong, but I, I think Donald Trump 
himself as a viable political figure is no more. And I'm not saying that he's not going to have supporters, and I'm not saying that he might not have a degree of influence. But after the events of the last couple months, I think that the truth of the matter is, moving forward, he's going to be a lot less influential than he might have otherwise been. And I think that there's going to be a lot of mainstream Republicans who are going to disagree with the sentiments that Donald Trump Jr. said on Wednesday before the rioting, that it, there's not a Republican Party anymore, it's the Donald Trump Republican Party. I, I don't think so. I think the Donald Trump Republican Party, it's not disappeared, but I think it's in the process of, of shrinking. But my concern is what happens over the next couple weeks. I, I think impeachment would be bad for the country. I don't think the 25th Amendment is viable. Maybe President Trump maintaining a low profile and just leaving Washington and going down to Mar-a-Lago and you know, playing golf for the course of the next 10 days. Maybe that's the way to ride th- this out. And you don't have to get to the um, resignation point of view. But I, again, I keep circling back. August, you know, 8th of 1974, Richard Nixon, recognizing, you know, where his political fate was heading, decides to resign. Let's take a quick break. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. All right. Here's here's a current number of listeners are saying there would need to be two votes in the Senate on impeachment. The first has to be the two-thirds vote to convict. That would be to impeach and remove a president from office. Then you would have a second vote um, that's 50 plus one to keep him from any other elected office. So I guess that's how the process would work. As a practical matter, that that is not going to happen. That, that There's just not enough time to do that. You would have to have a, a full-blown trial. There would have to be an opportunity to prepare for the trial. There's there's less than two weeks in the, left in the Trump administration. I, I guess I, I look at this now. Somebody, a number of people are texting me and are making the point that Jeff, um, let's see, you 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 fail to appreciate the depth and the degree of support that is still out there for President Trump. And and maybe maybe in fact that is is the case. But at the same time, I think that support has been greatly diminished. But regardless of whether you are a supporter of the president or not, regardless of whether you think that Donald Trump was done terribly wrong over the course of the last four years. And and, and I appreciate, I understand why some people would feel that way. I think you have to look at the current circumstances. And this this is not, some somebody said, Jeff, are, are you, I, the, the, the text essentially said, I agree with you over the course of the last couple months, that, that his behavior has been completely and totally, you know, appalling over the course of the last couple months. But, you know, 70 plus million people voted for him. And, you know, can you judge a presidency on the last four months? You know, shouldn't we, the last two and a half months since the election, shouldn't we judge it on those four years? Now, I understand as I'm saying that some people are rolling their eyes and saying, what has he done over the last four years? But let, let's put that issue apart. To me... The, the issue of resignation has to be separated from the whole question of, you know, did you accomplish what you wanted to accomplish? The question is, given how things stand right now, you know, what is in the best interest of the country? And I think that's the fundamental question here. Has the president, through his own conduct, his actions and his inactions, has he rendered himself unable to effectively govern? And, and I guess that's, see, that that's the issue that, that's out there for me. And again, I don't mean to predict this, but I, I, I hope that the message is being sent. 
you know, through different channels to some of our enemies, people who want to want to see us undermined. Look, don't mess with the United States now. This is not the time to do it. Like, I believe that there were similar sort of messages sent back in in August of 1974 when the Nixon administration was crumbling. Look, don't don't mess with the United States. I guess. See, that's that's the bigger picture. And sometimes even if you feel that you have been done very, very wrong, you've been done wrong, that this stuff is all unfair, sometimes it is a test of character that you decide that you want to put the interests of the country ahead of of your own interests. Now, look, I, I live in the real world, too. I, I, I understand that the in the real world, the chances of President Trump actually resigning are, are slim to none unless unless you, you have that conversation, unless it becomes apparent that there will be an impeachment and that, you know, whether it's Lindsey Graham or whoever makes that Barry Goldwater walk from, uh, you know, Capitol Hill up to the White House and say, you know, you've lost the support. And, and if there is a trial, you will be convicted. I don't see that happening again because of the timing of this. But for for whatever, I, I think that the president, in the interest of the country, would be well served to continue consider you know alternatives over the course of the next couple of weeks, and I think this would also, if he has any concern about his legacy at all, that this probably should influence. And one of our callers earlier was talking about the whole pardon situation. That's that that's an issue. Who knows who's on that pardon list? And I have been, I think. I, I don't like the pardon power to begin with, and I think it's been abused by several presidents. Uh, Bill Clinton, you know, um, who decided to uh, pardon a fugitive financier who was also married to a, a big contributor. Okay, Mark Rich, that, that was a terrible thing. A number of the Trump pardons have been absolutely appalling, and I don't know who else is on that list. But, you know, given the events of the last couple of weeks, you know, any sort of any other pardon, including of your political allies, is going to be viewed with incredible, incredible skepticism. Back with more in a moment. <laughs> This is Jeff Wagner. Coming up in about 10 minutes, I want to talk about the political future of a prominent Wisconsin politician. If you could offer any advice to Senator Ron Johnson, what would that advice be? I have a piece of advice. I will share it, and then we will discuss. I also have a a, a piece of advice, and I would extend this to, as a general term, commentators in the media and particularly politicians. And that is, and I, 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 I learned this early on, not the hard way, but just early on in, in my media career, which is that quoting Adolf Hitler and using Hitler comparisons, whether you're on the right or the left, almost never works. Forget almost never. It is never a good idea. Freshman U.S. Representative Mary Miller, she's from Illinois, apparently she was giving a, a speech at the U.S. Capitol um, on Wednesday before all the you-know-what broke loose. And um, in her prepared remarks, um, she said, this is a battle. Hitler was, and, and she was she was talking about the need to appeal to young people in politics, and she said, this is the battle. Hitler was right on one thing. He said, whoever has the youth has the future. And that, that's a comment often attributed to Hitler, who organized youth groups to introduce children to Nazi ideologies. This is the battle. 
Hitler was right on one thing. He said, whoever has the youth has the future. All right, my, with all due respect, my, my advice to incoming freshman Mary Miller of Illinois would be knock off the Hitler quotations, knock off the Hitler analogies. If you want to say it's important for us to reach out to young people and, and teach them why conservatism is the wave of the future, that's fine. Analogizing it to Adolf Hitler, never Ever, ever a good idea. We're going to make that Wagner's rule of life 14.5. Hitler analogies are never smart. Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Actually, the, the texts we're getting are just actually fascinating on this. Somebody says, Jeff, how can you pardon somebody before they're charged with a crime? Yeah, you can do that. You can, you, the, the, the pardon power is broad enough to, to allow you to preemptively pardon people for any and all potential offenses. And the, the, perhaps the most prominent example of that would be when Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon for any crimes related to Watergate, any and all crimes. And he hadn't been charged with anything, but it was one of these blanket sort of pardons that is out there. Let me double back on something I started the program with, and then I'm going to use that to lead into what I want to talk to you next, which is um, the political future of Senator Ron Johnson. There are people out there who are saying, okay, the, the Donald Trump has destroyed the conservative movement. Donald Trump has destroyed the Republican Party. It's going to be 10 years, 20 years, 30 years before it can retain, remain a viable force, to which I say balderdash or other words like that. And, and maybe it's just I've been around long enough to understand that what, what you what you see on the ground, it's kind of like the fog of war. Sometimes what, what you see on the ground and the obsession with the, the events of a particular day prevent you from understanding kind of the, the big picture. For example, after the Nixon resignation in 1974, all right, R- R- Jimmy Carter got elected in 1976. It was a very, very bad year for Republicans. Four years later, You've got the Republican Revolution and Ronald Reagan comes in. All right, 1992, you have uh, the first president, George Bush, loses to Bill Clinton. Democrats, you know, win all sorts of things. 1994, you've got another Republican Revolution, the contract with America, Newt Gingrich comes in. And, and then, of course, the Republicans fell out of power there. Give you another more recent example, 2008, at the end of the, the second President Bush term. Lots of people were disillusioned with the overseas wars and things like that. Barack Obama comes in with his agenda of hope and change. Barack Obama wins a resounding victory over John McCain, and Democrats pick up all sorts of of seats. I think at the time they ended up with like 60 seats in the Senate, and they take control of the House. And I I remember I, I was on the air. People were saying, oh, this is the end of the Republican Party. The conservative movement has ended. Two years later, Two years later, the 2010 elections, Republicans gained seven seats in the Senate. They gain a net gain of 63 seats in the House. 
which was the, the largest shift of seats since 1948. In state elections, Republicans won a net gain of six gubernatorial seats and flipped control of 20 state legislative chambers. Now, again, I, I bring this up simply to say for everybody who thinks, okay, Donald Trump has killed the Republican Party. No, the Republican Party is bigger than Donald Trump, just like Bill Clinton and his impeachment didn't kill the Democratic Party. Things things will move on. And sometimes when we, we just focus narrowly on what, what's going on in the last couple months or something, people fail to see the big picture. I'm just telling you from an historical perspective, um, th- this country and elections and political parties, we have pendulums and we swing back and forth. All right, which brings me to Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson. Um, Ron Johnson, I, I know Ron Johnson. I, I consider myself a casual friend of Ron Johnson. It's not like we go out to dinner or close. He's certainly been on the program on multiple occasions. When Ron Johnson ran for office the first time in, in 2010, now, of course, he, he benefited from being one of those candidates that ran in that that wave election in 2010. But he ran against Russ Feingold. And Russ Feingold at the time had had served multiple terms in the Senate. He was considered to be unbeatable. And Johnson was this guy, a manufacturer coming out of Oshkosh. Nobody thought he had any chance at all of beating Russ Feingold. And he beat Russ Feingold. So six years later, when his term comes up again, Russ Feingold challenged him and if you can remember back then and I understand it's only four years ago but sometimes it's it's only four years ago but sometimes we forget that conventional wisdom was Ron Johnson's going to get smoked Russ Feingold's going to beat him there's there's no question Hillary Clinton's going to win Russ Feingold's going to win and and Russ and and Russ Feingold loses and one of the interesting things and I remember this on election night is that Donald Trump became the first Republican to carry Wisconsin since Ronald Reagan in 1984 when Reagan was running for a second term. But but all through that night, one of the indicators I had that, that it was going to be an amazing night for Republicans was that Ron Johnson was outperforming Donald Trump in, in Wisconsin. If anything, Ron Johnson had coattails. And to the surprise of a lot of people, you know, Russ Feingold, who was viewed as as, as one of the, the great liberal icons and liberal lions, he, he lost for a second consecutive time. And his political career essentially ended with Johnson winning. And again, he he benefited from timing, I think, just like he benefited from timing in 2010. But he also benefited from, I think, the, the message that he had in his ability to gain the support and, and actually, I think, maybe even broaden the basic Trump coalition. Ron Johnson said at, at the time that he was going to term limit himself and, and he'd always You know, politicians say this and then they change their mind. But Senator Johnson's term expires in two years. He is up for reelection in 2022. He is commonly viewed as the most vulnerable Republican, actually the most vulnerable senator running for reelection. And and that's partly because of the, the purple nature of the state of Wisconsin. And it's also because over the course of the last year or so, maybe the last two years, um, Ron Johnson has very much aligned himself with the, the Trump wing of, of the Republican party to the, the point of, whether it's holding hearings on some of the alternative 
uh, medical treatments to COVID-19, to some of his positions taken on the election, et cetera, et cetera. But the general consensus is that Senator Johnson has marginalized himself in a, in a state that, that is purple. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. As we look forward over the next two years, um, as it comes now, Senator Johnson, who had previously, you know, said that he, he wasn't going to run again, but, you know, people changed their minds a- at all. He now finds himself in, in the minority in the Senate, so he's not going to be a committee chairman anymore. He's clearly controversial, or at least more controversial than maybe he was, because of the close association with President Trump, and maybe that's a good thing or maybe it's a bad thing. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should Ron Johnson pull the plug? And I'm not talking about resigning now. There's an editorial, I think, in the local newspaper saying that Ron Johnson should resign or be expelled. Okay, that's crazy talk. That That's... That is not going to happen. That's kind of like the left-wing fever swamp. But there is a serious question about whether or not, given everything that's going on, whether or not it would be in the best interest of Republicans, um, whether it be in the best interest of Senator Johnson, to simply say, okay, I said two terms was going to be enough. After two terms in 2022, I, I'm going to go back to Oshkosh or, or, or do whatever and enjoy my retirement and clear the way for a new breed or a new generation or new voices of conservatives, Republicans, to to run for Senate against whoever it is that the Democrats are going to put up, be it Mandela Barnes or whoever. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. I think... And, and I take no pleasure in saying this because, I, again, I, I like Ron Johnson on a personal level a, a lot, and he's been very kind to me over the years. I, I think at some point in time, and I'm not one of these people who is out there saying, oh, I regret that I ever supported him. I, I don't. I, I don't at, at all. But moving forward, is it time for him to say, hey, I'm going to quit after 12 years. I'm not running for reelection. My answer would be I think he should seriously consider that. And I, I think he should do it sooner rather than later to allow for that next generation of candidates to step up. And that takes nothing away from, you know, when he stepped up in 2010. It's just maybe it's time to move on. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think? We discuss in a moment. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. And I want you to understand. So I, I've known Ron Johnson since he got in, in since he got into politics in, in 2010. Um, he has been very kind to me on a personal level of, over the years. But at the same time, if I were giving him advice and he hasn't come to me for advice, my advice would be Senator Johnson. I, I think you know two years from now, I think you should honor your pledge. I think you should say that you're not going to run for reelection. Part of the reason I would explain to him is I think that you, you will have a very difficult time getting reelected two years from now. And I think the sooner you make that announcement, the better it would be because you clear the decks to to make for other candidates to start raising money and and making their case as to why. Why Wisconsin voters should elect them, whoever that candidate would be, instead of whoever's going to run from the left, whether it's Mark Pocan or you know, who, who knows, or Mandela Barnes or whoever. All right, let's start with Nancy in Brookfield. Nancy, you're on WTMJ. Hi, 
guy. Huh. I think he's got to go. And I say this with a broken heart because I defended him when he first took office. I was happy to see a good, solid Midwest businessman come in. He's turned into a conspiracy theory supporter of Trump that has resulted in the death of five people at the state capitol. If he knows something about our elections being illegal in Wisconsin, he should have been working with the state legislature, not doing the crap that he was doing. The other thing that I hate about him is, you know, just like Trump, he only played to his base. And as a moderate, I expect him to return some of my emails or to contact me with, you know, if I have a question, he never showed up anywhere unless he was getting paid by some supporter that was extreme right Republican. He sucked up to his base and never broadened his base. And to which I say, shame, shame, you must go. Nancy, they, they, I, I appreciate the, the perspective. I, I don't necessarily agree with all of it, but I, I appreciate the perspective. And I think this is, in in certain respects, one of the problems I think Senator Johnson has politically is that, I, again, when you have Ronald Reagan, for example, broadened his base. Okay, he 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 won resoundingly in 1980 in part because Jimmy Carter was so weakened. But by 1984, he won every state except uh, Walter Mondale's home state of Minnesota. President Trump really was not able to expand his beyond but beyond his base now there, there were 70 million votes but but the other side mobilized and, and got more votes and i think that's part of the problem that senator johnson has moving forward which is you're, you're popular with the base even though i suspect that there's a lot of moderate republicans who've been turned off by rightly or wrongly by some of the stuff that's gone on let's talk to mark in florida mark you're on wtmj hello hey jeff thanks for taking sure. my call um couldn't disagree with your last caller more. Um, I lived in Wisconsin until very, very recently, a little over a year ago, my entire life. Um, I've met Ron Johnson several times. Mm -hmm. Ron Johnson is a successful businessman that when he said something's going on here 10 years ago, something's wrong, I'm going to Washington, D.C. and see if we can straighten out the business and economic aspect of this country. He gave up an extremely well-paying job, runs his own company. Last I heard, he employed over 300 people. Um, This is a dedicated individual who's trying to do a good job. Was he saying there's some fraud in the last election? Well, guess what? There was some fraud in the last election. Whether it overturned the election or not, we don't know. We won't know for a while. But this is a decent, honest human being that people from his area recognize as such. Well, I don't think the conversation is any... Well, let me ask you this, Mark. It's it's not a question of being a decent, honorable human being, which I I completely agree with. Do you think at this stage, you think he can get reelected in 2022? I do. If Tammy Baldwin on the other side, who's almost the same age, and we're in a purple state, can get reelected, and Ron Johnson is out front much more on issues than Tammy Baldwin is, I call her comatose Tammy because nobody can find her. Okay, but if he can, if she can exist in a purple state, and we have young Republicans and young Democrats coming back up, if she can exist in a purple state, Ron Johnson can too. And Ron Johnson, watch him. He actually tries to do his job. That's- okay, thanks. For, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I want to get a couple of calls before I have to take the break. I, I, this has nothing to do with Ron Johnson, in my opinion, being a decent and honorable man, be, because he, I, I believe him to be the case. I, I think 
some of the, the positions he's taken over the last year, some of the causes he's aligned himself with, and the, the decision to me, it's almost inexplicable in a couple cases, to align himself uh, again with, with President Trump on some of these issues. I, I think this is going to haunt him. I, I think it's going to haunt him among people who voted for him before. Matt in Janesville. Matt, you're on WTMJ. Hi, yeah, I'm a, a lifelong Republican, and my family's been very conservative um, as well. But I I actually have to say the editorial in the Milwaukee Journal, Journal today is spot on, and I think not only should he not run again, he needs to resign right now. I am just beyond disgusted with how he has just been sucking up to Donald Trump and hasn't really focused on any issues related to us in Wisconsin. I completely disagree with the gentleman that just spoke. Got it. Okay, thanks for calling. Well, again, I, I, I don't think he's not going to resign. But the question becomes, you know, especially when you've you've pledged that you're going to only run for two terms, and, it, you know, is, is it time to recognize that? I think, and again, it's you, okay, you're, you're on the ground. Maybe the, the scope of politics is going to look completely different in two years, and I gave you all sorts of examples of where it has. I think, I think, it would be a very, very hard-fought re-election campaign, and I think at this point in time it would be uphill. I, I think maybe Senator Johnson would be better off just saying, okay, I'm, I've served two terms. I, I'm now in the minority. Um, that's not as much fun. I've done the best I can. It's time to get out of the way and clear the deck, and, and let's have that next generation of Republican candidates co- come up. And if he's going to make that decision, he should do it sooner rather than later. Jeff, I agree with you. I believe that when Senator Johnson's term is up, he should step aside. I truly supported him in the past, but I feel that he's put party over principle. It's time for a new generation of thinking in the Republican Party. Um, Jeff, Ron Johnson, during 2016 campaign, term limited himself. He was very clear about this point. He needs to live up to his commitment um let's see and then there's a couple people who obviously aren't that that happy with him jeff i think after this week the make america great brand is finished you'll never ever get more than 30 to 40 percent of the voters to elect a candidate under that brand again that 30 to 40 percent is very very vocal but it hasn't ever won a compromised plurality of voters i think it's over all right let's take a break welcome back to jeff wagner on wtmj Here's a text. Jeff, I think Ron Johnson will either run for governor or possibly try to hitch a ride with a 2024 Republican presidential candidate, hoping to be either the VP running mate or be in line for a cabinet position. Hmm. Well, uh, Senator Johnson is 65, so two years from now makes you 67. Four years from now makes you 69 years old. I don't know. I guess I, I always say this, and I understand there's people who want to stay in the Senate till their 80s or 90s or whatever. If I had just a whole bunch of money, at some point in time, you, you kind of wonder, okay, is, is it time to kind of clear the way for other people and, and, and just enjoy however much time we have? I, I, I don't think... I don't think he's going to run for governor. I don't think he's going to be viewed as vice presidential timber. Um, I, I think he's had a, a great run, and it'll be interesting to see what he does next. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, very glad to have you with us. All right. Now, one of the, the narratives that's out there is, and, and it's actually, unfortunately, being perpetrated, or at least argued by 
president-elect Biden is that, okay, the, the, the mob, and they were mobs that, that overran the Capitol, they, they were treated completely differently than, for example, social justice protesters at various protests. And, and, and that's, I think, a very revisionist sort of theory that, that happens. I mean, I, I look at a lot of the social justice protests that ended up turning violent, for example, even in Wisconsin this year. And, and what you saw is you saw that um, authorities initially handled the, the protesters with kid gloves, got overwhelmed. I mean, I'll give you examples of that. In Madison, the, the police stood by first couple nights, allowed statues to be toppled, allowed buildings to be burned. In Kenosha, the first two nights, law enforcement was absolutely overwhelmed and allowed, uh, what, 30 buildings to be burned in the the city. In Wauwatosa, you had example after example after example where authorities made a decision that they were not going to engage the the protesters and they allowed the takeover of Mayfair Mall. They allowed the shutting down of, of restaurants and it ultimately led to that, that confrontation that you had out at the home of the uh, police office, the former police officer's uh, girlfriend's house, and, and something that had been organized by, on social media. We're going out there, we're getting the toilet paper, all that stuff, and it ended up with like the shots being fired. It was an intentional decision that law enforcement made that, okay, we're not going to engage the, the protesters. We're not going to engage this. And I argued against that at the time. My, my point was... You, you all you do by not engaging, by not being aggressive, is that you you end up enabling the the people who are engaging not in the legitimate protests, but engaging in the bad behavior. Now in Kenosha and in Madison, what law enforcement would tell you is that they were overwhelmed. In other words, they did not anticipate that the 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 rioting let's talk the Kenosha example they didn't anticipate that the rioting would occur they they just they did not realize and, and because it was so it was spontaneous they didn't realize that it was going to happen and so they were just outnumbered and so yes you you had Tony Evers who sent some members of the National Guard but the, it wasn't enough it was a way inadequate response and what happened is so what you ended up doing is having the National Guard set up behind a security fence to try to protect a couple public buildings meanwhile Kenosha ends up burning it, it took a couple days to get a sufficient law enforcement presence to be able to take back the streets so th- that's that's what went on and that's kind of the reality that was out there it, it wasn't for everybody who says well some of these social justice protesters they were they were treated so roughly by um, law enforcement no not not really it's a situation of like at least initially law enforcement did not have a sufficient presence to be able to to stop this all right which brings us to what happened yesterday I'm sorry, Wednesday at the state capitol. I, there's, there's no other word that can be used to describe, first of all, the behavior of, of the, the rioters as being despicable. I mean, and it's just, just pure and simple. The idea that, that people who are supposedly touting law and order would go and try to storm the capitol, engage in this behavior that results in, you know, one of the protesters, rioters, or whatever being shot. And that's a whole nother story that's going to be talked about. Three people having medical emergencies and a, a law enforcement officer being attacked and, and ending up dying. I mean, there is absolutely no excuse for that. But the question becomes, how, how did that end up happening and how could the police force so badly 
badly mishandle this. Now, there was a report on CBS, and, and this is earlier this morning, and it really got my attention. The U.S. Capitol Police apparently turned down offers for support from the National Guard and the FBI to help manage what ended up becoming a massive Capitol security breach carried out by a mob of pro-Trump supporters. Capitol Police were contacted by the Pentagon three days before the planned event to see if they needed assistance from the National Guard, according to the Associated Press. Then, as the rioters fell upon the Capitol, leaders from the Justice Department reached out to see if they needed assistance from FBI agents. Sources close to the matter told the Associated Press that both offers were turned down. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, look, there's a lot of blame to go around on on this this situation. I, I understand where the blame is being directed at President Trump for inciting the mob. They're clearly, I mean, it is the rioters that, that bear blame as well. But I do think it is fair to say to law enforcement, what could you possibly have been thinking? Now, Washington, D.C. is the subject of protests all the time. All right? this is, it is not unusual to have large numbers of people descend on Washington, D.C. What is unusual is to see the things get so out of control that you have a mob that storms the Capitol. And despite knowing, despite having foreknowledge that at least some of the people who were coming to Washington were coming with the intent of trying to disrupt proceedings that you did not have a more adequate response. Our number, 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Just like they failed in Kenosha by not having a sufficient law enforcement response to deal with the rioters, but in Kenosha, they didn't know it was going to be as bad as it was. There, there just there wasn't this sense. It was spontaneous. It happened in a matter of hours. In Washington, D.C., they knew for several days that there was going to be a lot, maybe even you can make the argument several weeks, that there were a large number of people that were coming, and at least some of the intelligence should have demonstrated that some of those people were intent on enacting violence. And yet the law enforcement response, the Capitol Police, whatever, were still saying no to the National Guard. I was reading a story. The governor of Maryland, okay, Maryland is very close to D.C., governor of Maryland kept calling up saying, I, I've got the Maryland, he said, you've got to authorize, the Maryland National Guard is ready to go, but you've, you've got to authorize this. Give me the authorization and I'll send the people there. And nobody did. 855-616-1620, a complete and total failure on the part of law enforcement. And if the idea was, if the idea, and this is the larger lesson, if the idea is, Let's not engage. Let's just allow people to do what they're going to do. Let's not risk antagonizing them. All right, this is example 1A of why that is a lousy strategy. All right, we discuss 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I see the Capitol Police Chief has has resigned. Well, he, he should because this was a failure, but there's lots of other failures to go around. All right, we discuss in a moment. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. (laughs) 
855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. See, I, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole of, well, if this was a social justice protest, would they have reacted differently? Well, it, you, you can look at what happened in Madison this summer. You can look at what happened in Kenosha, and you see that in those cases, they, they got overwhelmed. Law enforcement got overwhelmed. In Wauwatosa later on this fall, okay, I think, in Wisconsin, we learned from what happened in Madison. We learned from what happened in uh, Kenosha. And there was a huge presence, and law enforcement wasn't overwhelmed, and they were able to keep order. In Washington on Wednesday, it was the same thing. I have no doubt the Capitol Police were just absolutely overwhelmed. What is inexcusable, though, is the fact that they had advance notice that there was going to be this large demonstration, that there were people openly talking about on the Internet how they were talking about this kind of insurrection and yet they turned down the National Guard. They turned down help from the FBI. They turned down help from other law enforcement agencies until it was too late. So, yeah, there's a lot of blame to go around, and it starts with the rioters. But I do think it's a fair question to say, how could law enforcement have allowed this to happen? And have we learned nothing? The idea, if, if it was, well, we don't want to engage the protesters or rioters or whatever because we don't want to make them mad. Well, <laughs> have we learned nothing that impe- appeasement doesn't work? Bob in Waukesha. Hi, Bob. You're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Real well, thank you. What do you think? I want to preface my comments by telling you how sorry I am that this policeman died. It just breaks my heart. I'm, I'm a retired policeman. Yep. And a Vietnam vet. But I, I have to think that at some level, law enforcement was complicit in this. Okay, by complicit, what do you mean? Uh, Because of their strong stance and alliance with Donald Trump, uh, I I would guess 80% of law enforcement thinks Donald Trump is the second coming. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that that could be conservative. Uh, And and certainly... That doesn't warrant the death of this policeman or anyone else that was there. Or the destruction, yeah. Um, Bob, they, they, I, mean, I have trouble with complicit, although, I mean, I, yes, I, I have seen some of the video as well about some of the police officers posing for selfies and things like that. I, I'm, I'm hesitant to go that far, but I, I do, I, I think what, again, what, what happened here is we have the, this strategy that, that's used saying, let's not engage, let's, and, and I, I don't know if that necessarily makes you complicit, but the strategy of, okay, we're, we're not going to engage because we don't make, want to make things worse. And, and maybe, maybe there was this perception that the, the Trump supporters that were there. And by the way, I, I do, I do want to say something here. There, you have to, just like for the social justice protests, just like you have to draw a difference in saying, okay, not everybody that, that showed up for a march in Kenosha or a march in Madison or a march in Wauwatosa, not everybody was there to loot and burn, and, 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 that's, and that's, that's true. Matter of fact, most people were there to engage in legitimate peaceful protest. I think you can make the same claim that, I mean, there were, there were thousands and thousands of people that were in Washington, D.C. for this, and it was... A large number, but but out of those tens of thousands of people, it was 
right, right, like a few thousand that decided to storm the Capitol. So, I mean, I think you do have to make those distinctions because it's not like everybody that showed up at the rally said, let's go take the Capitol. But clearly a large number of people did. And, you know, they, they were proud of this and they felt enabled to do it. And they gave notice that something like this was going to happen. And, yeah, I fault the president of the United States for egging them on and not condemning this in a timely fashion. But I, I do from a law enforcement perspective, it's you have to plan for for the worst. You have to say, okay, what is, what is this? What is the potential here? And the idea of the United States Capitol being stormed by a bunch of protesters, where you know whether they're waving Trump flags or Confederate flags or whatever, just absolutely unacceptable. And I hope law enforcement isn't complicit. I, I think in general they just underestimated what was going to go on, and and that's that's not acceptable either. Because why you get paid the money is you get paid to anticipate it, and this was something that could have been easily anticipated, unlike if we want to cut some slack for, like I say, Madison or Kenosha, unlike the stuff that is spontaneous and all of a sudden law enforcement is outnumbered. My gosh, there's all these protesters. We're outnumbered 10 to 1, and it's going to take us a while to get back up here. That didn't have to happen in D.C. Matt in Mequon. Matt, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon. Yeah, um it was unfortunate what happened there at the Capitol. Uh, I know people went there to, uh, um, you know, peacefully, um, you know, protest and, you know, have their free uh, speech rights out there. But uh, it appears to me that uh, what with people that went there to write it at the Capitol, it looks similar to what the uh, Antifa, what their tactics are. And it's um, there are some people that had talked about being there and they saw people getting off the bus. And it had the hallmarks of Antifa. In fact, one guy said that that's what it looked like to him. So, um, and they were the instigators of what happened at the Capitol from what it looked like. But uh, it's unfortunate um, what happened. You know, prayers are for the for the people that did die at that. Um, but, yeah, there should have been better uh, protection around the Capitol, like with the National Guard, make sure nobody... You know, got further than that. Oh yeah, so. no, th- absolutely, Matt. No, thanks. Now, let me let me just stop you there for a moment. I, I, I in this while this was all happening, while we were doing like live spoken word radio on Wednesday, I had a caller that called in and said, "Hey, I I don't think these are Trump supporters. I don't think these are MAGA people. I don't think these are the right wing. This is." This this is this is a, a put up job by Antifa, and I remember I said this a couple of days ago. I, it takes a lot to render me speechless. I, I'm sorry, I'm not going down that rabbit hole. You, I sent out a tweet about this. You you look at the, the the pictures. We know who these folks folks are. They were taking selfies of themselves. They were proud of the fact that they had done this, and now you're starting to identify them. And it's not Antifa. I mean, it's it's the guys from the Proud Boys, and it's you know some of these people from QAnon or whatever, like the guy with the the furry hat and the horn and all the tattoos. You you, you can't have your own facts with regard to that. Now, I do think that one of the things that was out there is maybe, just maybe the police took the position or or thought, okay, these are Trump supporters and, and they're, you know, supposedly they're the law and order folks and they're not going to engage in this type of, of behavior. Well, okay, if they made that assumption, they were unfortunately proved very, very wrong. My point is moving forward, the, the lesson to law enforcement is you have to prepare for for the worst. You just absolutely have to because you cannot allow those images. Those images went worldwide. And, and here you have the United States, which is the, the bastion of democracy. And, and again, we look like, 
you know, we look, it looks like Beirut. You know, we, we look like, again, you know, a country run by a tin pot dictator who's able to gin up the masses to try to prevent the orderly transition of power. That cannot allow, be allowed to happen in this country. Let's talk to, um, Bert in Milwaukee. You're in WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Good afternoon. Hello. Good afternoon. Thanks for calling. Yeah, so I was just talking to the man who answered the phone or whatever, and I said, I definitely think a lot of it lays at the foot, the feet of the president. He should have not stirred the pot like he did. Yep. He really did entice the crowd to go there. However, I do think the Capitol Police and all the agencies that could have been involved should have gotten together way before that yep. and worked on crowd control, because even early on, you could tell how large that crowd was. And if they didn't have the guts or think whatever that they needed help, by looking at that crowd, they should have figured out that they might need help. Oh, absolutely! I mean, I and help was available. All they had to do was ask. Help was yeah. available. There, you know, they, absolutely. but 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 they kept they, for three days. And I mean, I don't understand. This is one of the bad things about the the internet is that it it allows it allows these groups to operate and to, and to plan and to organize. But in this case, for days and days, they've been talking about here we're yes. going to descend on 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 Washington. And then you have the comments from the president and the president's kid kind of whipping up the crowd into a frenzy how could you not have anticipated that some people were going to take their comments literally and start trying to do what they ended up doing absolutely absolutely no offense you know what i just retired from 25 years of teaching and it amazes me i taught four-year-olds and they take everything literally but there are a lot of adults who listen to the president or listen to the powers that be who will take everything that they say as truth and gospel yep and Yep, absolutely. No, thank, thank, thanks for the call, and hey, by c- congratulations on your retirement. Again, I, I, I bring this up because there's going to be like a lot of like after action, you know, reports and trying to figure out you know what went wrong, and a lot went wrong here, including the lack of press. I, I do hope one of the lessons of this though is, it, it is not that well when you have protests, let's not engage. Uh, okay, so the next time you have a, a huge social justice protest or an, an anti-abortion protest or a pro-abortion or, or whatever, the next time you have a, a, one of these protests, let's let's not have sufficient presence. Now, the answer to this is they screwed up because they didn't have enough presence to deal with it. Somebody's saying, you, know, you say help was turned down. Who turned them down? The Capitol Police turned them down. These were offers that were made, at least according to the CBS report, to the Capitol Police, and they said, no, 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 we've got this under control. I don't think so. Okay, we move on in the next segment of the program. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. What is justice? And who gets to decide that? Uh, before, before all you know what broke loose on Wednesday at, at the Capitol... One of the big local stories, of course, was the decision announced Tuesday afternoon by the district attorney in Kenosha County, who, by the way, is, is a Democrat. I, I bring that up only in light of some of the comments that were made afterwards by other Democratic officials. Um, so Democratic Attorney General in Kenosha, looking at the, the case involving the Jacob Blake shooting by the Kenosha police officer, Rustin Shisky, decides that there's not a basis to issue criminal charges. That was based on a report 
an investigation that was done by the State Department of Justice, which is, by the way, headed by Josh Call, who is the Democrat Attorney General of the state. And it was based also on a report commissioned by a guy named Noble Ray, who was the former police chief in Madison, who then, you know, worked as a as a coordinator with the Obama administration after he retired in 2013. And I bring this up only because the decision that was made, this this is if you want to look at it on party lines, because they're getting criticized by, for example, the state Democratic Party and Mandela Barnes and indirectly by Governor Evers. I mean, this isn't it's not a Republican Democrat thing. It's it's a Democrat district attorney with a very liberal former police chief and the State Department of Justice run by a Democrat who make this investigation and they conclude that there's not a basis to issue criminal charges. So that's condemned in some circles saying this is injustice. And it got me thinking about oh, what, what, what does it mean when you say it's, it's not justice? If you have prosecutors who conduct a thorough and complete investigation and determine that based on the evidence available, there's not a basis to bring a criminal charge because you couldn't secure that charge beyond a reasonable doubt. Is it what, what is justice? Do you go ahead and charge the police officer anyways? Because, gee, you've got some people, you know, that are, that are some loud voices that are screaming or some very, very politically powerful voices that are screaming that the person needs to be charged. It means it justice to bring a charge if you don't think that you can secure a conviction. Now, I, I read most of the reports that were issued. I listened to not all, but much of the news conference. And in, in my opinion, it, it's not a surprise that they determined that they did not have a basis to bring criminal charges, which would have required them to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, the facts of what happened that, that day last summer, they're really not that much in, in dispute. You have Jacob Blake, who has an outstanding felony warrant for domestic violence, and Blake's girlfriend, who is also the mother of some of his children. She's, she's, um, she said that even though he wasn't supposed to be at her house, she had let him come to their son's birthday party. Um, and then there, there's, she makes this 911 call. She says that he was threatening to leave in her rented SUV, in other words, steal her car. She says a struggle ensued. So the police officers, they, they go out to the scene. And you've got Officer Shisky, and he's riding with a police officer, um, a female who'd been on the force less than a year, who was still in training. They pull up at the house. They see Blake carrying a preschool-age child, the woman running behind yelling, I'm taking the kid, I'm taking the car. Now, let me just stop here for a second. You're the police officer. You're responding to a 911 call. You know that the guy already has an open felony warrant against him for domestic violence. You have a woman calling up saying, um, you know, he, he's been at my house. He's not supposed to be there. And she's screaming and he's walking out saying, I'm taking the kid. I'm taking the car. All right. From the perspective of the officer, what do you do? I mean, do, do you do you let just let him drive off with the child? At which point in time, can you imagine the outrage if this turns into a, a kidnapping? Plus, you have somebody that's again got an open felony warrant against him. So, what ends up happening is, is the officers engage with Mr. Blake. 
Um, they didn't, by the way, know that Blake was their father. All they know is this guy is like taking, taking the kid. They didn't know that there were other kids in the car. They try to handcuff him. He refuses to comply. Um, Blake is bigger than Officer Shisky. And you've got the other police officer who, again, female, one year in training. So th- what happens then is they get into a struggle. And the cops think they're losing. They they deploy the taser twice. He pulls the taser away. That doesn't stop him. They believe he has a weapon, and he did in fact, you know, he did in fact, you know, have have a knife. He refuses to comply with him. They're sitting there thinking, okay, if he gets in the car with his kid, they're going to be driving away. We're going to have a high speed chase. So the officer decides. He says, I, I couldn't let him drive away. He grabs Blake by the shirt in an effort to prevent him from getting into the SUV, and then Blake, who they knew had a knife. Um, then starts, you know, turning as if he's going to come attack Shisky, and the officer fires on multiple occasions. All right, that that's the, the facts and circumstances of this. Now, I, I, this all ties into the idea of justice. The district attorney, based on the report and the investigation, says, "Look, I, I, we could not secure a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt," and that leaves some people unsatisfied and unhappy because, I mean, this, this is an unfortunate result. Jacob Blake is, is paralyzed because of, of the shots. They explain, some people say, well, he shouldn't have shot seven times. And Noble Ray, who is the, again, the former police chief in Madison, you know, he explains the multiple shots. And he says, you know, we're, we law enforcement people are taught to fire in order to subdue the threat. You shoot until the threat is over. And in this case, it wasn't until after the seven shots had been fired that the guy slumped into the front seat of the car and dropped the knife. All right, so they decide there's no criminal charges. In my opinion, that is the correct decision. Some people might not like the outcome, but that's the correct decision because you would not have been able to secure a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. But that doesn't end there. It doesn't necessarily end the inquiry. The next question, matter of fact, I'm looking at an opinion piece in the local newspaper that says, essentially, regardless of whether or not a criminal charge is appropriate, the officer who was involved in the shooting should, in fact, be fired. He should lose his job. Our number, 855-616-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. No question in my mind that the lack of criminal charges is the appropriate situation from a criminal perspective. But that that doesn't end the inquiry. All right. Should they fire Officer Shisky for what he did that day? Because even if what he did doesn't rise to the level of being a crime, um, it, it is possible, I guess, he could have violated police procedure. Should he lose his job? As a result of the confrontation, 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My thinking on this, just like with the Wauwatosa officer, I don't think there was misconduct in this case. I don't think there's a basis to fire him. Nevertheless, it might be in everybody's interest, including the officer's interest, um, to arrange a settlement and to have him move on. 855-616-1620, should the officer be fired? We discuss. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. Leonard on the north side. Leonard, you're first. Good afternoon. Uh, Good afternoon, Jeff. Look, I've got two concerns with the overall case. One, I thought the uh, Kenosha District Attorney really laid everything out uh, very detailed. 
there were two areas I've got concern with. One, in the community now, there's this concern about training of officers. Mm -hmm. There's the opinion that the training is flawed, that everything you do is that the officer go home that night. If that means you got to shoot some guy and it's questionable, shoot him. The other aspect for this case in particular was the officers did not do their duty by not tackling that guy before he got around to his car and got in it. They showed fear. Mm -hmm. And you can't show fear as officers. you got to do your duty. After they tased him, they couldn't get him down. They should have tackled him. And that's the major problem. That he got a chance to come around to the side of that car. If that shouldn't have happened as officers, they should have tackled that guy before it got there. That's why he'll end up getting a settlement. Okay, well, thanks to call. Well, I mean, here, here's my, here's what I understand at least about that. That that there was, there, there was after the the taser, and the, the, so here you have the you have Mr. Blake, who's bigger than the officer, and um, what the officer said is they thought they were losing the struggle after after you tase the guy, and it didn't work. There, there was a struggle and apparently, you know, rolling headlocks. The officers became concerned that they were losing the fight, you know, and, and I guess I don't know if that's showing fear, but but they they did not think that they could physically take him down. And so then the officers got to make this decision. OK, if if by getting into a physical struggle with this man, I'm, I'm overpowered, what what do I end up doing? It seems to me at that point you've got a it, it's a very difficult situation. You you. The guy was intent on getting into the car and driving away. You can't let him get into the car. You can't let a guy who's got an outstanding felony warrant get into the car with a child. And and again, they didn't know at the time it was his kid. But it's like a kidnapping and a car theft. You just can't let him drive away. And then you, you add the fact that the man's resisting arrest, and then he pulls out the knife and he starts to spin. I, I just, in all honesty, I, I don't know what else the officer could do. I'm a big believer that, that you have to do everything you possibly can to try to de-escalate stuff. And I think it is a fair criticism from time to time when you look at these confrontations and you say, what did police do to de-escalate? Let me give you an example that some of you won't like. The Sterling Brown arrest, what, a year and a half ago, um, I think in that particular case, there were multiple opportunities that the police had to de-escalate. And at, at pretty much every turn, instead of de-escalating, they ramped stuff up, which led to, you know, the, the, the matter getting worse. As I objectively look at this case, I'm not sure under all the circumstances what the cops could have done to, to de-escalate it because – Jacob Blake had decided that he was going to do what he was going to do, and he, he wasn't he wasn't going to obey the officers. The tasering wasn't going to work. He was more overpowering than the officers. And then, you know, you add the fact that once the officer has made the decision, he's not going to let the guy get in the car. He, the guy has the knife. I, I guess I, I look at all that, and it's difficult for me to see how you can say he violated all these different procedures and he should lose his job. And 
I, I that that's the issue. Now it may be because of of all the attention this has gotten and the riots and stuff that he's in an untenable position, and and maybe um, just like Officer Joseph Mensa, it's in everybody's interest to you know cut a deal with him and send him on his way. That's a different concern. But as far as whether he deserves to be fired or not, I don't know what it was that he did wrong. This was an unfortunate outcome all along. But you know what procedures did he violate? Could you have handled it differently? Well, in retrospect. You know, maybe you can, but you've got a guy with an outstanding felony warrant. You show up. He is non-compliant, and he's getting in the car with a child, and he's got a knife. Troy in Door County. Troy, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. I've been in the car since uh, 8 o'clock this morning. been listening to you and Steve. You guys had some great shows today. And, Thank you, sir. I really sure. appreciate that. Thanks for listening. I appreciate sure. it. Fun to hear. Um, I, I, I'm on your side on this time. I, I, I do not think that the officers should be fired for this. Um, I, I think they are under huge amount of pressure when they get into situations like this, and you have a, a person, white or black, who's not listening, not obeying orders, and uh, you have to make a decision real quick, and then let alone for him or her to have a weapon. Um, I, so I, I think it's a tough I'd like there for there to be some gray area in between, but I don't think there is. And lastly, if Jacob Blake was a white individual, would we be having this discussion as much? I'm not sure, or just as much as if the officer was black. Um, just because it's a black and white, we all of a sudden now it's a racist thing, and we go back to still we go back to not saying Jacob, you could have stopped this early on if you would have listened. Right, you would have cooperated, but he didn't. Right, right. That, well, you know, and again, that, there there is, of course, you hate to say it, but there is, of course, this racial components there. Now, the argument is that that if he hadn't been black, that the officers would not have done this; that they would have let him presumably get in the car and, and drive away. I I don't. I guess I don't believe that to be the case because you you review this. You you know what do you do? Can you imagine what happens? The, let's let's say that you're not able to stop him. He gets in the car. He drives away with this kid, and you know steals the car and drives away with the kid. Can you imagine the condemnation there? That well, you, you let this guy engage in a kidnapping. Now, one of the, the issues that I, I know, and a number of people are bringing this up on the texts, the and, and this happens a lot of times in these shootings. One of the issues is why did you shoot seven times? What, why didn't you just shoot once? And and maybe this is an issue that maybe police, and I'm not necessarily advocating this, maybe they need to do a better job of explaining it, or maybe they need to readjust the rules. But in real life, it's not like the Westerns. You don't shoot to wing somebody. You don't say, I'm going to try to shoot that gun out of your hand. In in real life, the only time that you are, are justified in using deadly force as a police officer is, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but if you believe that your life is in danger or the life of somebody else is in danger, and then once you believe, once you have the right to use deadly force, you are taught to fire until that threat has, has gone away. And and that's why you see the multiple shootings. It's not, gee, I'm going to fire once and see what happens. In the case, and this was the, the police investigator who said the reason they fired multiple times was because it wasn't until that, that seventh shot that the guy slumped over in the car and dropped the knife. And and so that that's how they're trained. Now, if you want to argue that maybe they need to reassess the training and maybe these rules should be reevaluated, that, that's a discussion for a different day. And I guess I don't. 
I, I'm not proficient enough in, I know what the law is on use and force, but to describe that. But but I know that there's some people out there who think, okay, well, you you fire once and that's it. Well, I mean, they used the taser on this guy twice, and, and, and that did not work. Look, this is an unfortunate situation. Nobody wants to see this happen. No, nobody does. And I, I guarantee you, there's no police officer that wakes up in the morning and says, hey, I hope this is, I get into a life and death struggle with somebody at close quarters while I believe that they're out there trying to kidnap a kid. You don't start your day hoping that you end up in this thing. I guess I, I look at this. Was the charging decision appropriate? It was. Can you do more with Kenosha police with regard to training? Oh, I, I, I'm Okay. If we need to have, you know, better training to deal with community interactions and things like that. I'm all in favor of it. I, I really am. I think maybe, you know, that's one of the things that comes from all the stuff that's going on this summer. But as far as finding a basis to charge him, other than the fact that people don't like, at least some people don't like the fact that there weren't criminal charges, then finding a basis to say, well, let's fire him anyways. To me, I don't see where that's justice. If the officer fundamentally did nothing wrong and didn't violate rules, what is the justice in saying you can no longer do your job? Again, the practical reality might be makes sense for everybody else to move move on, you know, reach a settlement and, and have him start a career somewhere else. That might make sense. But is justice reached by firing him? And my answer would be no. When we come back, we'll find out what John and Melissa have on their minds. Stick around.